got your Bibles, go to John chapter 2. That's where we're going to be. And uh, to uh, kind of begin that, I'll tell you a little bit about... Uh, so I've had the privilege of baptizing all three of my children. My two oldest are in college, uh, still have one at home. And it was a great thing. I mean, it was, it was an awesome opportunity, to, privilege to, to get to do that with my kids. But I'll never forget um, when, we, when I had the opportunity to baptize my son, Jay. So Jay's a freshman in college now. He was about nine years old when we were, um, he was going to be baptized. So he wanted to do that, and he went through the baptism uh, training and uh, met with an elder and did all those things. And he was, I mean, so Jay kind of, can be kind of a shy guy that you know, doesn't like attention drawn to himself, anything like that. So we, you know, worked through, hey, listen, n- nobody's looking at you. They're, you know, they're celebrating baptism. It's, it's no big deal. So he was like, okay, great. So we did it. Um, and we used to, the way we used to do baptisms is because we don't have a baptismal in the building. We, we have this portable one now, which is really awesome. You'll see how it works in a little while. But we had, so East Texas Pool and Spa would donate us a spa for the weekend, and we'd do it out here under the carport. So we'd put the spa there, we would uh, fill it with water, and then we'd go out after the services, and we would do baptisms. Everybody gathered around. And, so it was kind of fun. I mean, it was, you know, it was fun. And, um, so... Here's, here's, how, here's how it went. Uh, so being the pastor, I was, you know, kind of organizing all the deal, and Jay was going to go last. So Jay gets ready to go. He gets into the hot tub, and uh, he's standing there uh, in the hot tub waiting for me. So I, I, I go to get into the hot tub, hit the top step, and I slipped. And I fell right on top of him. <laughs> and he went to the bottom. So that's baptism one, all right? <laughs> So I come up out of it, and I mean, the look on his face. I'm sure everybody's got cameras around. They're videoing, snapping shots. And the great fear of being, you know, the center of attention has just happened. And uh, so in the, you know, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we did it again. But I mean, I think, you know, it took him a while to kind of get over that I had made a scene, you know, on his baptism. I mean, it wasn't what we were here for. We made a scene, and then everybody's laughing. And it was, it was fun. He thinks it's big fun now. But in the moment, he was horrified. Well, what's interesting is, um, in, a, in a lot different way, but in the same vein, this passage that we look at today is is unlike, in many ways, lots of the passages we see about Jesus because he is going to make a scene in the middle of what's supposed to be a worship service. I mean, he's going to come in. He is going to, you, you know it, it's when he cleanses the temple. He, he goes in and he turns over the tables and he makes a whip and he kicks out the, uh, the, the money changers and, and all of these people. And he makes this tremendous scene in what the Scripture tells us is zeal, which we can translate anger and wrath. And in the midst of making this scene, he's making a statement that is important for us to see. In fact, it's so important, John included it in his gospel as the very second scene of Jesus' ministry in life here, in his life here on earth. And so if you've got Your Bible's open to John. I'm in John chapter 2. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. And I'm just going to read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll talk about a few things, and then we'll we'll participate in baptism. Here's uh, the way that John records it. John chapter 2, verse 12. 
After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This after this is um, after Jesus and his disciples were at a wedding. They were at a wedding, a celebration. Jesus turns the uh, water into wine. So it's after that. He goes to Capernaum. He's there a couple of days. Verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews said, let's take it 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he'd said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. goes on, and there's one more little scene here. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people, and indeed, no one Uh, He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Well, a couple of things about the passage. That verse 12 is a transition verse. It's a transition from from the wedding to the temple. It's it's a transition from this, um, this party and this celebration and Jesus doing a miraculous sign. Then he goes and spends a long weekend in Capernaum with his family and his friends. And then he goes to the temple, which was supposed to also be a great time of celebration. Turns out it was anything but that. The Passover was a festive time. Uh, It was a celebration and it was a time of sacrifice. It was a time that if you were a Jew and you lived in the land, or you lived even outside of the land, you would travel to Jerusalem because that's where worship took place. And you would travel to Jerusalem because that's where sacrifice was made, was at the temple. And so you'd go there, and it was, it was a time of remembering who God was and what God had done to bring His people out of Egypt. And then before they left their homes, they would clean their houses, get rid of all the leaven as a purity of themselves, They would travel to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices, to worship God. It was a great time. It was followed by seven days of feast. It's noted here, it's called the Passover of the Jews, if you were wondering. It's because John's writing this at a time when the church is in full effect, and he's he's just wanting any Gentile readers to know it's, it's the Passover of the Jews. We don't celebrate the Passover anymore, is what John's saying. We don't celebrate it because the sacrifice has already been made once and for all. We, we take communion. We take the Lord's Supper. We remember the sacrifice that was made, but we don't make any more sacrifices. That was the Passover of the Jews. 
Well, in verses 14 to 17, we're going to see Jesus in the temple. And in fact, his actions in the temple, in verse 17, it, it'll, it says, John records, after all this was done um, and the disciples were reflecting on it, they remembered what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 96, that, that uh, uh, zeal for my father's house will consume me. I'm sure they were wondering, what, what got into Jesus here? And so they remembered the psalm. And in fact, the psalmist, he goes on to say in that same psalm, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. In other words, what Jesus is saying is the shame, Father, the shame, the, the shame that God's people have brought to God. I feel that shame when I show up and I see how people have approached worship. What got Jesus bent out of shape was he goes to the temple. The temple, the outer courts was the, uh, was the place, uh, the, what they call the court of the Gentiles. So that meant anybody in the world from all the nations could come. They could approach God. They could come into the court of the Gentiles. It was to be a place of prayer. But when Jesus shows up, it was a market. It was like the East Texas Fair. Not only did you have to pay to get in, but then you had to buy all the tickets to ride the rides. I mean, it was the biggest racket in the world, right? You know, a coat costs $8, and that's the small one. That's what's going on in the temple. In fact, what he calls it, the, the text says they're merchants and money changers, and they've made it all into a market or, or an emporium, or we could think of like a bazaar or a circus. Salesmen, money changers, uh, they're in the, the temple negotiating. Uh, the scene's probably familiar. If you've ever been to a foreign country, particularly a foreign country that um, is you know, not, not as wealthy here, but, it, but there you would go and um, the, there are people on the streets all the time, vendors. And the poorer the country, it seems, the more aggressive the vendors are because tourism is so important. And you show up, and uh, we were just in Egypt a, a month ago, and you would you'd go to a site in Egypt. You go to see this, you know, his, you know something that's 5,000 years old. And you would show up, and you'd have to walk through this gauntlet of all these vendors. And uh, they're aggressive, and they don't take no for an answer. And they want, you know, the dollars in your wallet, they want to be in their wallet. In fact, everything they sell is for a dollar. A dollar, a dollar, you know, it's like. And, and, and you're, just, you're, you're just pressed on every side. Well, that was the scene to the entrance of the temple, the house of worship. My father's house, as Jesus will say. Besides it all being set up in the temple area, the merchandise for sale increases the occasion for offense. So listen, they just weren't selling souvenirs. You know what they were selling? They were selling sacrifices. I mean, they weren't just, you know, these weren't just trinkets you put in your suitcase. You go, oh, I got you this from Jerusalem when we were there. They were selling tickets to the presence of God. See, the money changers, every Israelite that was a male of 19 years or older, when they showed up at Passover, they had to pay a half-shekel temple tax. It, it always had been that way. 
from the Old Testament. That was part of what kept the temple running. You would show up at, at the Passover. You would pay your half a shekel. Here's the thing, though. In the first century, the people didn't use shekels anymore. It was a Roman-occupied area, and so everybody, Roman currency was what everyone used for the day. So when you showed up at the temple, they were there to say, listen, you're a Roman currency, you're American dollars, they're no good here. You've got to come to the people that are trading in the money. We got all these shekels, you have all this money. So you give them the money and they would exchange you for the shekels. But here's the thing, they marked the exchange rate up so high that by the time you traded in for your half shekel and the shekels you needed to be able to buy the sacrifices, you ended up paying two to three to five days of wages just for the exchange. And then you had the sacrifice sellers, if you will. Not only were they sellers, but we find out from rabbinic literature in the first century, they were also what they would call sacrifice inspectors. And here's what that meant, that these guys were guys who were trained. They would go to a farm for 18 months or so. They would be trained in how to spot the imperfections in animals. Because, the, listen, the animals to be sacrificed were supposed to be animals without blemish. And the idea was that you would raise your own animals, you would bring them to Jerusalem with you, those would be the ones you would offer for sacrifice, the lamb or the ox, or if you, were, if you were poor and you didn't have any means, you could bring a pigeon or a dove. But these guys, they, they were supposedly trained, and they would show up, and they would inspect your animal when you got there. And invariably, every single one of the animals, as it turned out, would have a blemish. In fact, if it didn't have a blemish, they were even trained in how to spot animals that would end up having blemishes later on. It's like, I know that looks like a pure lamb. It's like, I know it's a pure lamb. Nah, but seeing all my training on the farm, uh, in a couple of years, this lamb will end up having a blemish. And you're standing there, and you have no recourse. The guy takes a big red magic marker and X's it and says, you can't use that one. But don't worry, we have, we have some animals for sale. And then they would sell the sacrifices. This is what they were doing. In fact, Annas the high priest, the high priest, the, the one that was supposed to be guarding over the worship of God, he was the one that was, that was franchising these booths. In fact, you had to pay Annas to be able to have a booth, and then you would make the money, and you would exploit the people that came to worship. And you couldn't even come into the presence of God without being exploited by the people that were there to serve you and to serve God in His temple. If you were wondering there in verse 16, and He told those who sold pigeons, you know, it's like, what was He so mad at the pigeon sellers for? Well, I'll tell you why. Because that was, that was the sacrifice, that was the offering for the folks that were that were poor, that didn't have any other means. So not only were they exploiting all the people, they were, they were exploiting and extorting from the poor among them. There they were in the court of the Gentiles. They'd taken up all the space. That meant the people from the other nations, those that had come for it to be a house of prayer, those that were, that were interested, that were trying to come draw near to God, they couldn't even get in. And they were 
making obstacles for all people to come into the presence of God. So, so Jesus, in verse 15, he can't stand what it is that he's singing. So he finds some cords, presumably, I think, probably laying around. They had been used to, you know, bring the livestock in and those sorts of things. Here's some ropes and some cords laying around. He grabs them, fashions a whip, and begins to drive them out of the temple and overturns their tables. That's what caused the disciples to remember what the psalmist had said. You know, it's, it's very likely it startled them. I mean, can you imagine? I mean, they've just been drinking and dancing at the wedding, and Jesus, you know, he restocked the whole wine bar there, and then they'd spent this nice, relaxing weekend in Capernaum. Now this? You know, it's the reminder, and it's a good reminder for us. J Jesus came to make available the mercy and grace of God. But that is not the only reason Jesus came. Jesus also came to satisfy the wrath of God. I mean, another way to say this is that Jesus came not only to save sinners from their sin, which he did for their sake, but Jesus also came for the sake of his Father's holy and mighty, and perfect name. You know, the prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all the Old Testament prophets, all of the Old Testament for that matter, will point to things like this, that they will affirm God's faithfulness to His covenant. Israel, you're my people. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You're mine. I have made a covenant with you. It is an everlasting covenant. What I said will end up coming to pass. And I'm going to save you. I'm saving you because I'm in covenant with you. But, but I also want you to know I'm saving you for the sake of my holy name. You didn't earn it. You're not worthy of it. It's not because you're the great and mighty Israel on the planet earth. You're the object of my covenant, my affection, and you've profaned my name. You've dragged my name through the mud, and I'm going to redeem the holiness of my name. In fact, listen to what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 36. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, it's not for your sake, O Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. He goes on, after I've acted, after, I have to, after I've saved you for the sake of my holy name, then you'll remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you'll loathe yourself for your iniquities and your abominations. It's not for your sake that I act. Let that be known to you. So be ashamed and confounded for your ways. There's a sense in which God shows immeasurable grace to his people. And at the same time, he wants them to know they've profaned his name. That, that they're receiving a grace they don't deserve. That's the definition of grace. But lest you think it's anything you've done, it's not. 
It's my grace for you and the concern I have for my holy name. You know, it's interesting. When Jesus comes for the first time, and that's what we read about in the Gospels is His first coming. The eternal Son of God becomes man. We call that the incarnation. He comes through the... Uh, he's born in the natural way through a, a, a woman. Um, he lives a life. He uh, is perfect, however. And he lives for 30 years and then begins his ministry. And we talk about the first advent of Jesus, this first coming of Jesus, as being the advent of grace. Because he came to show us God's grace and he came to show us God's mercy. And, and, and he's also going to come again. That'll be the second advent. When he comes the second time, he will come as judge. He'll come on a horse as a warrior, as a judge. In fact, in Revelation chapter 19, what you find is he's going to show up and he's wearing a white robe that is going to be stained with crimson. It'll be the splatters of the blood of his enemies as he comes to, to judge the living and the dead. And only those that have put their faith in Jesus, when God judges His Son on our behalf, do you escape that judgment? L listen, um, you'll be judged by God. You'll either be judged in, in the judgment that came on Jesus, which means it's satisfied, or you'll have to stand on your own before Him. This gives us a glimpse, and it reminds us, hey, listen, Jesus isn't, you know, it's just, it's not only the meek and mild Jesus. Certainly Jesus is meek and mild. So we see that in the, in the Gospels. But He's also the eternal God. His holiness is at stake. One commentator said that He must have appeared to be seven feet tall as His whip began to fly. Tables crashed and money jangled across the floor as our Lord drove out the money changers. Get out of here. This kind of scene maybe makes us uncomfortable, though. It challenges the categories we have about Jesus, doesn't it? I mean, Jesus loves. He doesn't judge. God, in the Old Testament, He's angry, but Jesus shows up, and He's nice and loving and Listen to what Kent Hughes has to say. He says, Christ's anger was rooted in his reaction against the religious irreverence of the Jews toward God the Father. And we must realize the significance of the setting in the passage. And he goes on to say, listen, the temple, it's the place that God's glory was. You had to come into the presence of God to glorify God. You couldn't even come into the temple. You couldn't even come into the presence of God without a sacrifice. And then he says this, they denied the holiness of God. Our Lord's whip opposes anything that distracts from the communication of God's glory, especially in worship. There is scarcely anything more relevant than this truth to the 21st century church. Even professing Christians sometimes reduce God to much less than He is. We may have made a, a valid attempt to present the humanity of Jesus so men and women can see God as He relates to them, but this attitude has been carried to the extreme. 
It has become so perverted that Jesus has been effectively and functionally emptied of his deity. For many, Christ has become a pop Jesus who lies back with his Beats headphones and reads the Sports Illustrated. It's easy to fall into a flippancy that an angel would never dare fall into. The result is a contemporary idolatry that brings a distortion of God into a man-made image, physical and mental. Our irreverence reflects an idolatrous concept of God. We say things like, the man upstairs. But if we do, we do so out of ignorance. The big man in the sky is not the God we worship. And so no wonder Jesus was so indignant about the irreverence he saw. When the loss of the knowledge of who God is settles in, an irreverent spirit begins to take root in our lives, and such an attitude restricts our ability to worship. So Jesus clears the temple of the Jews. They are going to demand an answer in verse 18. What, what sign do you show us for these things you do? In other words, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to come in here and to do what it is that you have done? You know, on the one hand, they have a good question. Who are you? What is your authority? Listen, this is a question we all ought to ask. Who, Jesus, who are you? What is your authority in my life? over the things that I do and say and think. Jesus appeared to them to act out of the clear blue sky, an unprovoked act. It wasn't a peaceful protest. It wasn't a signed petition. It wasn't a, a, a lawsuit filed in the court for them to decide. Jesus very physically takes matters into his own hands. And they want a sign, but Jesus says, listen, I don't do tricks. Not interested in proving myself to anybody with displays of power. Listen, think about this for a second. Jesus is the guy, the, the God-man, who turned the water into wine, who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind, who walked on water, calmed the seas, hushed the waves, raised the dead, he did all those things with a word. I mean, we can presume that with a word, he could have cleared the temple. At the very least, he could have like Superman, you know what I mean? Like just blown wind and, and knocked them all out. But he doesn't here. He takes his carpenter hands and he fashions a whip. And then his arms begin swinging and his blood begins pumping and sweat runs down his brow and he exerts the full strength and energy of his humanity while he exerts his divine authority. Three things I want to say about this. One, on the one hand, in the midst of this zealous anger and this is, there is tremendous grace. Jesus' ministry in the Gospels, like I said, primarily, it's a ministry of grace, not a ministry of judgment. 
He didn't come to judge now. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. This isn't a display so much as of divine judgment as it is a prophetic warning. Like the prophets would come and they would physically demonstrate or they would, they would preach the word of God and they would warn the people, listen, you're in rebellion, you are in sin, turn away from that. Jesus here sounds the warning, God's holiness is not to be mocked. The sign, secondly, the sign that the Jews wanted with regard to Jesus' actions in the temple that sign would have to wait. Listen, the hour would come and that sign will be displayed, but this was not the hour. Jesus' vindication of his Father's name would come as he offered his life up as a sacrifice for all the sin which dishonored him. Here's what it means. That the anger and the wrath that results from sin from rebellion, from, from idolatry, from exploitation, from suffering, all of that, the wrath would not be poured out by Jesus. Rather, that wrath of God is going to be poured onto Jesus. Here's what's astonishing. Jesus will take the place of every wicked salesman and money changer and rebel and the exploiter that was present that day. He will take their sin upon Himself. He will take their shame before God, and He will make it His own. And three years later, He will come back into Jerusalem at another Passover. He will be arrested. He'll be led up a hill. He'll be nailed to a cross. He will die the death they deserve. And it's there that God's wrath will be poured out. His anger and His wrath will be poured out on Jesus. The Lamb of God. That's how John announced Jesus in chapter 1. Will take away the sin of the world. The Word that was made flesh, who, who dwells among us, will in full display show the glory of His Father. Justice and mercy. Justice and mercy. Righteousness and grace, they will meet at the crucifixion, the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus. Justice will be executed and satisfied. Grace will be won and freely offered. You know what's amazing is Jesus, they were talking about the temple. They were, they were uh, mad because Jesus was defiling the temple. The temple is the place where you come to worship God. You come to offer sacrifice. You know what? Jesus in and of himself is both of those things. They were closer to the worship of God and the true sacrifice of God than they had ever been in their entire lives, and they didn't even know it. Third thing I would say, at the end of the day, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus is the only sign that matters. To come to Jesus for lesser signs is to desire Him for something less than a Savior. Listen, it doesn't matter if He heals you if you're not saved by Him. It, it doesn't matter if He proves to you to be the Son of God if you will not also accept Him as the Lamb of God who was slaughtered for your sin. 
it does you no good to advance in your career or marry the love of your life or walk your daughter down the aisle, though you may attribute all of those to the grace of God. It does you no good unless you receive the grace that comes only through the forgiveness of your sins and the resurrection to new life. Jesus did not come here so that your life could be improved here and now. Hope it is. That's not why he came. He came to bring people to the end of themselves so that they could then receive the life he offers, eternal life, reconciliation with the God of the universe who created you and you sinned against. He came to save you. He came to save you from God. By taking that on himself. He came as the light of the world to chase away every shadow. He came as the life that was to be raised from the dead. He came in the weight of glory to crush every self-sufficiency and self-centeredness. He came as the word made flesh that by his very presence our hearts would be convicted of sin. He came as the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for sin and to take it away. And He came as the temple. He is the temple, announcing a new way for worshipers to enter into the eternal and forever presence of God. Destroy the temple. I'll raise it in three days. Thank God He did. You know, as we come this morning and we celebrate baptism, that's what we celebrate. In many ways, baptism is like a play. This is the theater, and we're acting out, we're rehearsing, we're remembering what it is that Jesus did. And in His death, going down into the grave, in His burial, and then coming up, resurrected to new life. As one goes down under the water and then comes back out, it's, it's like a play that rehearses a reality. And those that are being baptized are identifying with that reality. Here, let me say this. Those being baptized this morning are those that have already been saved by Jesus. This water does not save them. It's just plain old water. came right out of the tap of Tyler, Texas. And I tell folks all the time as they're going to get baptized, you know, what, you know what happens when you come out of the water? You're going to be wet. And getting wet doesn't keep you from sin. And getting wet doesn't put you in heaven. We're getting wet to say, I'm identifying with, I believe what it is that Jesus has already done. He died in my place. He rose to new life. And because He lives, I live. Each of those that are being baptized this morning will make a confession of faith. 
And we get the opportunity to celebrate that faith with them. So what we'll do, and uh, Michael um, Swindell, who is our family pastor, is going to kind of be our, our uh, uh, MC of the baptism. But I will say this. This is something that is cause for far greater celebration than anything we'll watch on TV this afternoon, especially at noon. <laughs> that is probably appropriate that as they are there and making their confession, as they go into the water, that we'd be silent and we'd listen and pay reverence. And when they come out of the water, let me tell you something, that's a party to be celebrated. You can stand, you can clap, you can whistle, you can shout. This is a great celebration as they publicly proclaim their faith in Jesus. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray for us. Michael's going to come up. He'll introduce those being baptized, and we'll get to share in all of that joy together this morning. Father, thank you for the time that we've had.